questions after being in England this many years. But uh, this this one, uh, Mernith, is a uh, uh, is a Welsh tune. And visiting Welsh churches, we uh, we got to hear wonderful singing uh, often. Uh, they're famous for it, and uh, it's good to hear a congregation that sounds almost that good anyway. We're uh, uh, delighted to have been part of your missionary uh, group over the, over the years that we've been in, in England and uh, also helping with churches in, in Wales. And we wanted to have the opportunity to say thank you. Barbara sends her greetings and uh, she wishes she could have been, been with us. Uh, to be to be part of this time together with you, uh, but she, as has already been indicated, uh, sh- should not have made this trip and did not make it because of health issues. She hasn't been doing nothing during this time. Uh, I've she's reported to me on uh, on three articles that she's been writing during the days I've been away. Uh, three articles that are for magazines that she's a regular contributor to, one in Scotland and the other one in Australia. So she's been writing on uh, several, uh, writing several brief biographical sketches for those, for those magazines, and she intends to continue to do that. So uh, thank you for your prayers for both of us. You know, when, when missionaries come to a church and they're invited to preach, uh, people tend to expect that a missionary is going to preach on the Great Commission, that passage there at the end of Matthew that says, then Jesus came to them, that is to his disciples, and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. In that uh, brief statement, we have the general commission to the church of Jesus Christ to spread the good news to every part of the world. Jesus is uh, clear and he's insistent on this command throughout his post-resurrection ministry. In fact, uh, during that, that time, from the time of the resurrection to the ascension, there are really only two things that Jesus does with his disciples. One, he proves to them that he has really risen from the dead. And secondly, he commands them to carry the gospel to the world. You may not believe that, but if you don't, just take the time to read those sections of the four gospels and the opening verses of Mark, and you'll find that those are the things that Jesus does. And he, uh, and even when he is restoring Peter there in that famous passage at the end of the Gospel of John, he is constantly saying to Peter, feed my lambs, feed my sheep, take care of my sheep. It's all about ministry. It has a missions impact. 
If we claim to be Christians, there can be no question that we are involved in the spreading of the gospel. The only questions that we have to answer are, one, where are we going to do it? And two, what are we going to do ourselves in regard to the spread of the gospel? And those are questions that never leave us. If I can use my own experience, it's already been indicated. But, you know, back uh, before 1970, Barbara and I were convinced that God had called us to Australia. We went there in 1970, but by the end of 1980, we were also convinced that it was time for us to move back to the U.S. And so we did. And we were involved there in the planting of the church in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. And by the end of 1989, we believed God was calling us to serve in England. And so there has been a change of location. There's been a change of emphasis. That may happen for people. It may happen for you. My experiences, however, are no proof that that's the way God is doing things. But there is a record of God's dealing with the Apostle Paul where he is changing the direction of Paul's ministry. And I want us to spend some time looking at those verses in Acts chapter 16. Now, I didn't take time to check on which version of the Bible you were using, so I'm reading from the NIV, so you'll excuse me, but you'll be able to follow if you have an ESV in front of you. Acts 16, beginning at verse 6. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Just a couple of things by way of background to this passage. Paul was in what is commonly called his second missionary journey. If you have a Bible with maps, you can probably find one that shows the roots of his various missionary journeys. This was the second journey. It began shortly after the general assembly in Jerusalem that's recorded in Acts chapter 15. Paul and Silas carried the decisions of that council of churches to the churches there in Asia Minor that uh, that had been established during the first missionary journey. And then they continued on into other areas. Derby and Lystra are mentioned in particular in the passage. And the maps tend to assume a return visit to Antioch of Pisidia. That's also there in that part of the country, not to be confused with Antioch in Syria, which is where they started from. From Lystra, Luke tells us only that they went from town to town in the regions of Phrygia and Galatia. Now, where should they go next? They got to the border of Mysia. 
and they thought about swinging northeast into Bithynia. You're familiar with this uh, geography of the ancient Roman world, aren't you? Uh, this is what's, uh, this area is what is today Turkey. And Turkey is, uh, sticks out from the landmass of Asia like a, like a thumb. And uh, if I can do it backwards to me so that it's right for you, you have this fat thumb. And on the south is the Mediterranean Sea. Over on the western edge is uh, the Aegean Sea between what's now Turkey and Greece. Then you've got a little narrow strait called the Bosphorus that leads you up into the Black Sea, which is on the north. Well, Bithynia is up here along the Black Sea. And so uh, it just seemed logical. They had, in the first journey, been on the southern coasts, which is uh, the modern tourist beaches of Turkey. And uh, they had come through more or less the middle of the country. And now it seemed, well, we'll just turn north and finish off this geographical area. It's logical. But you know, the Lord doesn't always have us do what seems logical to us. And so the spirit of Jesus would not allow them to go into Bithynia. We don't know how the Lord uh, prevented them, what things he used. The commentators make all kinds of suggestions, but they're sheer speculation, all of them. I simply accept the fact that we don't know how God led them, but the Holy Spirit uses different things with different people to move them to do different things. You know, back in the early 20s, if I have the story correct, there was, a, there was a ship in the New York Harbor, and it caught fire. On board the ship were all the goods of a Presbyterian missionary who was planning to serve God in Africa. With his goods gone, he couldn't go. And he was invited to go to Columbia, South Carolina, where a new Bible school was uh, being started, he became the president of that college. It's the college that Barbara and I and both of our daughters and both of our sons-in-law graduated from. Thousands and thousands of missionaries have gone out from that school, but he never got to go to Africa. God sometimes redirects the way we're going. Sometimes the Lord says, wait a while and I'll show you what to do next. And while Paul was waiting to know where God was, was leading them, he and his team moved to the town of Troas. It's there on the coast, a good staging area for wherever God might lead them next. And while he was there, Paul had a vision. Now, I've never had a vision. I don't know what I'd do if I ever did. probably be terrified. But in those days, before the Bible was complete, God sometimes used these visions to direct his people where they ought to go or what they ought to do or what was about to happen. In this vision, a man from Macedonia appeared and said, come over to Macedonia and help us. Now, who was this man from Macedonia? You know, in modern times, uh, there might be an invitation from someone in another country to come and 
help them with what they want to do in serving the Lord. That's what happened to us. As I was explaining in, in Sunday school, a letter arrived one day in the mailbox saying, come over to England and help us with church planting. Christian people there asking for help. But that's not the case of what's going on here in this vision of the man from Macedonia. There weren't Christians in Macedonia looking for help. I think that the old 19th century commentary by Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown describes uh, what's happening here very well. The portion on, on Acts is written by David Brown, and he writes, This visional Macedonian revealed himself by what he said, but it was a cry not of conscious desire for the gospel, but of a deep need of it and unconscious preparedness to receive it, not only in that region, but we may well say throughout all that Western empire which Macedonia might be said to represent. Brown has brought out three things that I want us to notice here. First of all, he tells us it was a cry not of conscious desire for the gospel. Not a conscious desire for the gospel. You know, I'm often asked as I go from place to place, church to church, if the people in England are open to the gospel, if they're looking for the gospel. The answer is no. People are not looking for the gospel anywhere, not anywhere in the world. The Bible makes it clear in Psalm 14, verses 2 and 3, verses that the Apostle Paul uses in writing to the Romans when he's trying to establish the fact that, that all are sinners and all are lost. He, he quotes these verses. The psalmist puts it this way. The Lord looks down from heaven on the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. And he continues. All have turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. And so it's very clear that no one seeks God properly as we look at the world. This is a description of all those who deny God who are called fools at the opening of the psalm. But Paul uses the verses to show us that all men are lost. There are those who will discuss religion, but they do not want to hear the gospel. The gospel is an utterly foreign concept to the natural man. You know, in certain parts of London, there are Turkish tea shops. The tea is wonderful, Turkish tea. And the people are willing to talk. I had the privilege one day of uh, going around that area with a missionary who spoke Turkish and was working with Turkish people we could go into a tea shop and get into a conversation, immediately be talking about uh, religion with, uh, with these nominal Muslim people. They would talk about it. They're not like the average British person or English person who's, 
whose attitude is to ignore religion completely. In fact, if you start to talk about the gospel with a neighbor or uh, the average English person, a kind of a curtain comes down between you and uh, they don't argue, they don't fight, they just don't say anything. They wait for you to change the subject. It's happened too many times not to know it's a pattern. There is no conscious desire for the gospel. Nevertheless, there is a need for the gospel. You see it there in in Psalm 14. There is no one who does good, the psalmist says. There is a need for the gospel. You can see the need for the gospel when you look at at the world around you. The, The news media shows it to you again and again. In England, we were constantly being told by the reporters about the problems of, uh, uh, of children in, in single-parent families, although we never really could say that that was, uh, that was a problem. You had to act as if single-parent families and two-parent families were almost the same. And yet there was, and yet there was a not recognition of a problem of illegitimate children and, and, uh, th- and the rising prison population. Or drunkenness. Among young people in England, it's the goal on Friday and Saturday night to go out and get absolutely smashed. This is uh, having fun, apparently. And it's a problem that the police face on Fridays and Saturday nights. The antisocial behavior of both young men and women, uh, where they fight and and make noise and do all sorts of things that they wouldn't do if they weren't so drunk. Some churches have gotten involved in trying to minister in that situation. Men that go out on the street in the middle of the night and uh, try to help these young people. They, uh, young women will lose their high heel shoes and so they carry emergency footwear. Uh, it's cold. They often go out... W- terribly underdressed, and then uh, they, need, they carry blankets, uh, emergency-type blankets to, to work, to help them, put them in a taxi to get them home or something, trying to ex- extend the love of Christ to, to these young people. We could illustrate the deep need of the gospel from just looking at social situations anywhere in the world. But we need to look at the third thing. There's no conscious recognition of a need for the, uh, of, or desiring the gospel. There is a need and there is an unconscious preparedness to receive the gospel. Now, unbelievers around the world say they are not interested in, in the gospel. And yet at the same time, God is doing things in the lives and hearts of various ones of them to prepare them to receive that gospel. They are being prepared by the providential works of God in their lives. And into those providential circumstances, whether it's some difficulty or whatever it is, God brings the gospel messenger. And then the Holy Spirit who accompanies the message does what the missionary can never do. He opens the spiritual eyes, the spiritual ears. He works in the heart 
so that they will respond in faith to Jesus Christ. And that's what happens in the examples that we see that follow in this chapter 16. Examples we don't have time to look at, but many of you are probably familiar with the story of Lydia, the very wealthy merchant woman who comes to faith. The slave girl who is rescued from her bondage by, by uh, the apostle delivering her from demon possession. And the jailer, this uh, local official, they come to faith, not because they were looking for the gospel as such, but something in their lives made them uh, aware eventually of a need and the spirit of God worked in them. Earlier we asked, who was this man from Macedonia? David Brown in his commentary put it in terms that were common to the church of the 19th century. He indicates that he stands for all those people, all those people who still need the gospel in the world. He writes, this voice cries from heathendom still to the Christian church. And never does the church undertake the work of missions, nor any missionary go forth from it, that is from the church, in the right spirit, except in obedience to this cry. Let me ask you this morning, do you hear the cry? Do you hear the call from Macedonia, from all of Europe, or from Asia and the islands of the Pacific? Do you hear it from Africa or Latin America? Or perhaps you hear it from the cities of our own country or the people who have migrated to this country looking for a better life but are still unconscious that what they really need is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That that's what will make their life what it ought to be. Do you hear it? Are you ready to respond to it? There's no question that we've all been commissioned by Jesus Christ to be part of the work of carrying the gospel to the world. The questions we individually must answer are, what am I to do and where am I to do it? And those are answers, those are questions that you have to answer for yourselves before the Lord. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we do face those questions in our lives. Those of us who have already understood the gospel, who have experienced the, the life-transforming and changing direction of our lives by the Holy Spirit, we now remember that you may redirect and direct our lives as you choose. And we ask that you will lead us in the way that we ought to go so that we will be actively part of the spread of the gospel, whether it's here in Owensboro or across the ocean. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.